1: 15 years go by, finally write a novel. It, it, I was incredibly fortunate with the response. I just felt so happy and gratified. And suddenly, there were people interested in my second novel. You know, I'd gotten the thing I wanted. I was a, a novelist. And to my complete surprise, I found myself just uninspired, or I, I didn't have an idea to start. And for a year or two after my first novel came out, that was okay. I was getting offers to do all sorts of fun and random things. I also, I do like writing literary criticism. So I, I wrote, I wrote a piece about um, Samuel Richardson, an 18th century novelist I like for the New Yorker. That was fun. You know, I, I wrote just, I wrote some other piece. I wrote a, a television pilot based on Edith Wharton's House of Mirth, which is great. I, that got my husband, and me and our daughter health insurance for two and a half years, even though it was never made. Um, so it was like, I kept busy, it was great. But after a while, I was starting to feel like, huh, I'm supposed to be writing another novel. And I, I just, when I'd sit down to try to write fiction, I found that I was kind of uninspired. What I wrote seemed sort of boring, even to me. And, and I was just kind of shocked by this.
0: And welcome back to The Writer Files. I am your humble host, Kelton Reed, wishing you pages, patience, and perseverance per usual. Best-selling author Adele Waldman spoke with me about her former life as a journalist, writerly wish fulfillment, and going undercover for her latest workplace novel, Help Wanted. Adele is a journalist and best-selling author of The Love Affairs of Nathaniel P., which was named a Best Book of the Year by The New Yorker, Economist, NPR, New Republic Slate, Book Forum, The Guardian, and many others. Her latest novel, Help Wanted, from Norton this March 2024, is described as a funny, eye-opening tale of work in contemporary America. It's been named one of New York Magazine's 23 books we can't wait to read in 2024, Vogue's Best Books of the Year so far, Elle's Best and Most Anticipated Fiction of 2024, LitHub's Most Anticipated, and one of Kirkus's Most Anticipated Books of the Year. A starred Kirkus Review called the book the workplace dramedy of the year. Publishers weekly said of the book a bracing and worthwhile glimpse of the high stakes faced by low-wage workers. Adele attended Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, and her writing has appeared at The New Yorker, New York Times, and Wall Street Journal, among others. In this file, Adele and I discussed why she turned to journalism as a day job, writing a hard-to-like protagonist, the breakout success of her first novel, how co workers and friends at a big box store inspired her latest, found comedy, unfortunate nerds, unrealistic dreams, and a lot more. Stay calm and write on. And don't forget, you can always support this show by heading to writerfiles.fm, where you can also sign up for email updates and other resources for writers. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click follow to automatically see new interviews in your podcatcher as soon as they're published, and drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you tune in to help other writers find us. Yes, we are finally rolling on The Writer Files. I am honored today to be joined by an esteemed guest. We have the Best-selling author Adele Waldman is hanging out with us, and I am praying that I pronounced your name correctly, because I actually did not ask you.
1: You absolutely did. Um, I appreciate your asking, because my name is spelled kind of oddly for Adele. You know, like the singer spells it A-D-E-L-E, which is the normal way, but um, my parents just kind of spelled it eccentrically.
0: Um, Yeah, I can't wait to talk about all the things, and um, definitely want to talk about Help Wanted, your long-anticipated second novel. But yeah, let's, as we do with so many authors, wind the clock back a little bit for us. Talk about this really interesting, circuitous career that you've had as an author. And um, yeah, take us back, I, I guess, to the before times.
1: Gosh, like how far before?
0: <laughs> I find it interesting, of course, that you had gone to a pretty serious like journalism school. I did. Yeah, that must have affected how you write, how you kind of perceive the world, and and of course, obviously now as a lauded fictionist, um, I just find it find it interesting that you know so many really like successful fictionists did start out in journalism. I'm thinking specifically of one very famous, um, Ernest Hemingway. But yeah, take take us back a little bit and and kind of talk about how that may have I don't know steered you.
1: Yeah, well, it's so eccentric, and I think. In some ways, I'm not sure that journalism school steered me or the person who made the decision to go to journalism school steered me, if that makes sense. Like, I guess what I'm trying to say is the fact that for reasons I find difficult to explain, I was not interested in an MFA, but I was interested in journalism school just speaks to something kind of just, I think, odd in the path that I took, which I don't, I should be clear, like wholeheartedly recommend some of my decisions in my 20s. I just look back and I'm like, what was I thinking? But I basically had this very Bohemian idea that I wanted to graduate college, move to New York city, be a waitress and write a novel. And I just was kind of idealistic about this. I just sort of wanted to like eschew a conventional bourgeois, boring life. Um, There were a lot of problems with this plan, such as the fact that I had, I had been a waitress while I was in college for summers and um, semester I took off and I was not a very good waitress, nor did I really like waitressing, but somehow I thought doing it in New York city when I was writing a novel would be totally different. But I did try that. I I finished college. I, I just, I did it. I was, I was in the city and waitressing. And lo and behold, I still did not like waitressing. And it started to occur to me that I felt like I was years away from being able to write a decent novel. So I didn't know if I wanted to spend the next 10 years doing a job I didn't like and wasn't good at. Um, and I had a boyfriend at the time who was a journalist. And I basically, he was like the only person I knew who liked his day job. So I was just like, oh, maybe this would be a good day job for me because it was gonna be years before I'm capable of writing a novel and I need something to do like this. I'll learn about the world and it'll probably help but like eventually for me to get a book published. So, kind of, I went into it in not the most, you know, just a very arbitrary way. And I, at that I didn't go right to journalism school, but I did. This was the late 90s. I looked in the New York Times um, help wanted section on Sundays, and they had a section, and then, you know, it's actual paper, a newspaper, a physical one mm-hmm. was a called College Grads Wanted. And I looked in that section. I got a um, a job as an intern for a financial trade publication. Where it was called Financial Net News, and we covered financial services on the internet. And I got, I got the internship. It was like a paid internship for four hundred dollars a week. And after a few weeks, I guess it did well. They offered me a job as their associate reporter, the lowest level. But I liked it a lot more than waitressing. And through that, I came to have an interest in journalism. And I went from there to a newspaper in Connecticut, the New Haven Register. Then I went to journalism school, figuring I should try to get a broader understanding of journalism since I'd stumbled into it. So random, so randomly. And from journalism school, I went to the Cleveland Plain Dealer, which was then an excellent local newspaper that is sadly basically shuttered. It's I think now a website called cleveland.com, but like so many newspapers, it struggled, but I, I loved being a newspaper reporter. I think it was just, wonderful experience and i'm i'm just heartbroken by what has happened to local news reporting but you know for whatever reason i can't fully explain why when i was going through all these options i always planned or like hoped on writing fiction i never knew if i'd be able to do it but I'd, it was always my goal and for some reason i just was never very drawn to an mfa program and i think part of it wasn't even a good reason i think i was afraid of getting rejected and I, I think that drove me more than I realized. Um, I guess other parts of it were that I, I really like 19th century fiction. I kind of thought the stuff that was in fashion and MFA programs wasn't the stuff I liked. And I would just be out of step because I didn't read that many contemporary novelists. I don't know. I had, I had various reasons why <laughs> journalism path, but it was odd, but also interesting.
0: Yeah. Nonetheless, um, you persevered, but yeah, uh, yeah it's a cool story I mean and very interesting obviously so talk a little bit about maybe I don't know how some of it um, informed your first novel or you know uh, obviously you had quite a bit of success with your debut which is cool the love affairs of Nathaniel P like named best book of the year by like everybody um, that year and uh was that kind of shocking to you did you were you um, kind of ready for that type of? literary uh notice like right out of the gates
1: (laughs) that is such a hard question because obviously should say it was shocking and i didn't expect it at all because that would be the the like normal non-egotistical thing to say and i was thrilled and blown (laughs) away i mean don't get me wrong i I was like it was like my wildest dreams came true so i don't want to underplay that at the same time i mean i think i had been very ambitious with that novel like i felt like there was a very good chance that the world would see it as um, just a very narrow, light novel of interest maybe to young women who were dating because so much is about the internal dynamics of of just one relationship. And um, I had really hoped that it would be read by not just young women, but by men and people of all ages. But I was definitely afraid. I, I really didn't know what to expect because I felt like I was going up against some headwinds of um, just to write a book where there's no, in the book, there's no other plot. It's just a straight romantic plot. It follows one relationship from beginning to end. You know, there's no cancer, terrorism, or anything that would kind of elevate it conventionally to a more serious type of book. But it's also, I think, not very satisfying for people who want like a true rom com. It was a book that is kind of dark. um, Kind of, no one comes out well. That the main character is um, hard to like for a lot of people. But the 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 woman who I think readers tend to sympathize with, she also becomes kind of needy and clingy. It's, you know, it it felt like it wasn't quite an easy book. I, I I guess I was afraid that it might please no one, that it might disappoint people looking for a fun, uplifting rom-com without striking people who like serious fiction is serious enough. So I was definitely very scared. Um, but at the same time, I like I believed in the book. I felt like I wanted to write realistic psychological fiction that, that looked at an ordinary relationship and kind of took a more critical look at a certain type of male protagonist that kind of like loosely inspired by like a Philip Roth type character, sort of intellectual male from the provinces who's, I think when men write such books from their own perspective, they're often a little um, soft on their main characters in terms of how they treat women. And I want to just take a more, a fair look, but a critical look. Um, So I believed in the book, but then I, I I just couldn't believe how I, I felt so fortunate that I felt it was like beyond my wildest expectations in terms of the fact that other people seemed also to see something in it. And, you know, that to me was not, never a given.
0: You have had um, some time between novels to talk a little bit about.
1: Oh my gosh. So much time.
0: That yeah, talk about that. Sure. Just the evolution between the books, because now, um, as your second novel comes out, Help Wanted is also being lauded as one of the most anticipated of the year um, or 2024, and um, yeah, it's cool. It's cool to see, and, and obviously, um, what you know, what's the vibe over there? How 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 is the how are you feeling now as the second one is about to go out into the world in March here?
1: Um, one of the unfortunate side effects of taking so long to write another novel is that I have whatever skill I might have developed in terms of like developing like a thick skin and being prepared. I've like long since lost it because it's been so long. You know, I feel like people who publish novels more regularly might have a better recollection of what this process is like, but it's been so long I've forgotten. So I feel like I'm, I'm just as anxious and um, nervous as I was the first time. But yeah, the whole I never planned for such a long gap. It's been 11 years. And really, for me, what happened, it, it was just, I guess when I'm talking about my early career, what I left off is how badly I wanted to write fiction. As much as I like journalism, I i really felt like it was a good day job, but I could also spend my nights reading and and with the idea that one day I'd have enough material and knowledge of the world to write fiction. And I i did write a first novel that didn't get published when I was 30, and that was it was a huge disappointment when that novel didn't get published. But it also it was the first time I'd ever completed a novel with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it did teach me that I could do it after years of wanting to but never having written anything novel-length. It it kind of helped me keep going. So and that enabled me to then spend another five years on the love affairs of Nathaniel P., which ultimately did get published. But so all this time, by the time that one's published, I was 36. You know, I've been. 15 years since I'd graduated from college and a lot of years since I'd had health insurance. You know, it wasn't like things were going swimmingly at the, until that book came out for me. I was working as an SAT tutor because for various reasons, I just wound up not doing local journalism anymore. I left Cleveland to come back to New York and I started working as an SAT tutor um, because it was an easier side job to have than freelance journalism. Because by that point, I was really focused on novel writing because I had learned that I could do it with the first one. Anyway, I'm sorry I'm being so long winded. My only point is 15 years go by, finally, write a novel. It, it, I was incredibly fortunate with the response. I just felt so happy and gratified. And suddenly, there were people interested in my second novel. You know, I'd gotten the thing I wanted, I was a, a novelist. And to my complete surprise, I found myself just uninspired or I I didn't have an idea to start. And for a year or two after my first novel came out, that was okay. I was getting offers to do all sorts of fun and random things. I also, I do like writing literary criticism. So I, I wrote, I wrote a piece about, um, Samuel Richardson, an 18th century novelist, I like for the New Yorker. That was fun. You know, I, I wrote just I wrote some other piece. I wrote a a television pilot based on Edith Wharton's House of Mirth, which is great. I, that got my husband and me and our daughter health insurance for two and a half years, even though it was never made. Um, so it was like I kept busy. It was great, but after a while, I was starting to feel like, huh, I'm supposed to be writing another novel and. I, I just when I'd sit down to try to write fiction, I found that I was kind of uninspired. What I wrote seemed sort of boring even to me. And and I was just kind of shocked by this because I I thought I was full of ideas and insights. You know, it just it was like very disheartening, ego-wise, of like, did I, I was like maybe I just only had one one idea. And I think I started another novel that was set in the same milieu as my first novel, but it felt like I would just be I was just trying to rehash it. And that seemed depressing. Um, So it was kind of just stuck. And then I think what happened is Trump won the election in 2016, which I found surprising. Um, I guess many people did. And that maybe for me, like kicked off a little bit of being more politically aware, politically sensitive. I think that even though we'd obviously had a great recession, financial crash, 2008, largely I'd been so focused on my literary ambitions. I was just able to, Tune that out a lot. I just feel like it wasn't until Trump's election that kind of just started to hit me that I don't know, maybe we didn't live in as like a, a peaceful or unturbulent times as I had thought. I think previously I thought that you know things weren't perfect, but they were okay enough that it made sense for fiction to focus on personal relationships. Anyway, so one thing led to another. I just found myself more interested in politics, and I just got this idea of. What if I just looked for a job um, outside my normal milieu and just spent time outside the milieu and saw what happened? And I, I didn't have a plan. It wasn't like I knew I was going to write a novel set in a workplace, but I thought maybe I'd meet people that I wouldn't ordinarily meet, just kind of have expand my life experience. So I got a job at a big box store, and then I found myself completely inspired. It just suddenly, for the first time, it was... Gosh, five year when I did that, it was five years since my first novel had come out. And for the first time, I was like, oh, I want to write about this. I found that like I don't know if you've ever worked at a big box store, especially in the middle of the night, but it turned out to be like full of like novelistic like richness. Like it's full of mm-hmm. comedy and pathos. Like just picture like a bunch of people from totally different backgrounds, like unpacking co- all sorts of consumer goods in the middle of the night and like shooting the shit. And like it just it was just comedy and pathos and richness. So, so that was amazing for me. I felt like I had a subject. It was also, I don't want to underplay um, infuriating because I hope it comes through in the book, but my coworkers had very difficult lives that were difficult, not because the work was, was bad, but because they were just not paid at all adequately. It was just the circumstances of the jobs, part-time, um, didn't get enough hours. Didn't get consistent hours. To get more hours, you're supposed to keep your schedule very free. So it made it hard to get a second job. And my coworkers just—it was, I think, unconscionable to um, treat for for employees to be for people to be treated this way. Um, and I think it's sadly common. So I don't want to understate that. But I also, I just, I really liked my coworkers. I thought they were really funny and really cool. And so I just felt inspired on both counts to try to want to wanna write something that was both got at what was infuriating, but also what was compelling and fun and um, inspiring.
0: That's really such a cool story. And obviously it comes through in the work. Um, Congrats on the early reception of Help Wanted novel. Um, But yeah, it's super fascinating to me that you kind of went almost like undercover into this, uh, world and as you mentioned you know there is there is um something unconscionable about the work conditions faced by so many americans right now and it seems like it has been improving a little bit right like like in in drips and drabs like we'll hear something like you know walmart is uh paying you know um Employees fifteen dollars an hour, finally, or something to that.
1: Aside. Right, right. I mean, I think like statistically, it has gotten a little better, a little bit on the margins from um, since the pandemic and all the talk of labor shortage. I just think employers were compelled to raise wages a little bit to um, to just find workers. But I just, I think that can be overstated. I think one of the the biggest problems that that I saw when when I was at the store and. I still talk to my coworkers and I think it's still a problem. Wasn't so much a low hourly wage. It was being part-time and having hours that varied week to week, which has made it impossible to plan ahead. Like you just didn't know if you were going to make, get enough hours the next week to pay rent or feed your kids. Um, And, and that's been a shift. It's not just at the store I worked at, but it just didn't like low wage workers in general. Um, the retail and food service, there are a number of reasons why employers have have switched to making work for their workforces full-time to part-time mainly because they can cut benefit costs that way. And by they can just um, have only on hand, only as many people as they need at any given time based on their anticipated um, volume of sales. But instead of giving workers a consistent schedule what they're doing is just trying to game the system so they have just the amount of employees they will need at any given time and what what it does is just it it puts this impossible burden on the employee on the like lowest paid person to try to bear all this risk of uncertainty where and so you know it's like normally you think of a large employer as it would be the one to to sort of bear the cost of when you if you hire a worker, you you're sort of on the hook to pay them for forty hours a week, and um, that's the risk you take. The upside is you get all the profits if things go well. The downside is if things don't go well, you still pay them forty hours a week, and and the employee gets some stability in return. And I think for for so many low wage workers, that's just not what's going on. They they bear all the risk, and then the the shareholders bear all the benefits. And it's I just I think it's unconscionable. And I didn't realize I probably went in thinking. Um, you know, it was all for the fight for 15 that for to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And, and now I I actually think after spending time with my coworkers that every time we talk about wages without talking about hours, we're kind of giving employers a pass for what has happened. And it's all happened in the past 20 years. It's in response to, um, the rise of online retail and the need to just be really, really competitive, um, price, you know, I don't think it's like any one employer is like being malicious or bad but it just we've allowed the system to develop where where jobs that were okay 20 years ago people worked at stores and they worked full time sometimes they got overtime they weren't rich but they you could live on such a job like that's just not the situation for so many people now
0: sure when when there was a middle class right and uh and people could afford to buy a home in america but
1: <laughs> exactly <laughs>
0: Of course, you know, let's focus back on, on Help Wanted. And of course, the work has been described as a funny, eye opening tale of work in contemporary America, not to go down this rabbit hole of, of doom and gloom. But um, yeah, congrats. And I thought there were some, some great um, reviews here. Uh, obviously, Kirkus in the Star Review called it the workplace dramedy of the year, and uh, Publishers Weekly, a uh, bracing and worthwhile glimpse of the high stakes faced by wage O-H workers. And I thought it was cool that your cohort there um, had called, uh, excuse me, author, I'm, I'm going to butcher this name, Elif Batuman.
1: Oh, Elif. Elif. Think, you know okay. what? I've never asked her how to pronounce her name, but I believe it's Elif Batuman. Okay. But I could be getting it wrong too.
0: I thought it was really sweet that Elif um, had said of the book, Help Wanted is like a great 19th century novel about now that wants an effervescent workplace comedy and a profoundly... Human exploration of the psychic toll exacted by the labor market. So yeah, I mean, so and, and and again, congrats on the work.
1: No, that meant the world to me. It's Elif in particular, someone. I, I'm, this is actually true of everyone who blurbed the book, but um, but someone whose work I would admired for a really long time. And that I remember when I got the email from her, I was like, oh wow, this because to tell you like the truth is writing this book was I felt very difficult. I I made mean, something. Like I was inspired by the subject. But that didn't necessarily lend itself to then, like, I sat mm. down and wrote it. And six months later, there it was. Yeah. So I was, I feel like every time anyone says something nice about it, I, I sort of <laughs> melt inside because I still feel like I can't believe it. It had been such a difficult process.
0: For sure. Well, I mean, and and also, again, I thought it was cool that uh, Joshua Ferris blurbed it also saying, uh, in Help Wanted, the tragic heroes of the gig economy full of dreams and sob stories and what if scenarios uh, concoct a plot to better their lives? And so so that's, um, no spoilers here, of course, but um, that is kind of the, the thrust of Help Wanted. And Joshua also wrote uh, a really uh, cool book about
1: <laughs> absolutely
0: workplace uh, weirdness. Uh, and then we came to the end. I thought that was a cool book.
1: Oh my gosh, yes. That was one of the books that I feel like I admire so much and felt really... I like both inspired and intimidated by because it's it's a novel set in a workplace it's it's dark but it's comic and it has a group protagonist all of which I wanted to emulate though not in an office but yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I love that book as well
0: yeah well yours kind of almost has more of like a a heist feel to it but of course again congrats and the book is arriving here in March and um i will link to your home base there of course link to the book um arriving march 5th wherever you find your wherever you find your um dramedies wait we're not calling it drama. how do you describe the book because i thought the workplace dramedy of the year was a pretty succinct summation there
1: i love that but it's so funny it feels to me like it could go either way um the there was just this really thoughtful review in the Atlantic magazine. It it just came out early because it's a monthly magazine, so I got to see it early. And it's so I feel like it'd be hard to reconcile that review with the Kirkus one. Like it seems to me like they're talking about different books because that one really emphasizes like it being about a particular sociological milieu and just like I think it's just funny to me that that, that the Atlantic is. is great. It's really thoughtful, but I don't think it uses the word comedy once. Um, Mm -hmm. And so to me, it seems like it could go either way in terms of people's reaction. And I think I put this when I was sending out that mass email to my friends to be like, Hey, I've got a book coming out. We want to pre-order it? That'd be great. That um, annoying, obligatory mass email. I think every author has to write, but I sort of described it (laughs) like you could call it a, um, like a heartwarming, Workplace comedy or a scathing <laughs> indictment of neoliberalism. Take your pick. And that's kind of just how I feel. Like, I hope it's both.
0: Well, and that's why it succeeds, right? A scathing indictment. Of course. But uh, yeah, I mean, I couldn't help but think of this great film, uh, Nomad Land, a little bit covers some of that ground too, right? Because yeah. it's just like heartbreaking, but it's also very real, um, very realistic. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, anyway, congrats link to all the things. And, uh, um, of course help wanted, um, is getting a lot of great buzz. So, um, I've got a question for you about, because I kind of envision it also as like, you know, you had said you, you wrote a, a TV pilot. I kind of, I kind of imagine it already as like a somewhat, uh, a, you know, like a, a funny, uh, Come. Do, you, do you imagine it as like a sitcom or do you imagine it more like as a movie or do you do you uh, have you sold the rights already I mean it's kind I of have, uh...
1: I have not I have to say I don't know much about this world in spite of randomly having written this one tele, uh, pilot which it was a total uh, like the kind of thing you couldn't even replicate it was just <laughs> I happened to befriend someone who was a director who who liked my first book and we started talking about Edith, Edith Wharton and it just it came out of nowhere. There's, um, But I'm not expert in this world at all. Um, but I think because there's a sitcom called Superstore, yeah. it might be kind of a hard sell for TV. I feel like mm-hmm. Superstore might have kind of covered that. In my like private, unrealistic dreams, honest, this will sound so strange, I'm not someone who's like super into musicals, nor am I against them. But I actually kind of saw it as a musical because – I feel like a musical often has like an ensemble cast and in in my book, like each character gets a moment where they tell their backstory and I feel like it could see those moments being in song. And also the characters spend all this time, they're unloading a truck or they're um, stacking shelves of a big box store. And I feel like (laughs) you can Uh see that on stage. Like ironically, the fact of it like that is like, Seems both like a little boring in real life. It just seems like it could be so good on stage as characters are like jumping off of boxes and like oh my climbing gosh. on the truck. And then sometimes they go outside for their break yeah. and they're smoking cigarettes and the sun is rising. I feel like you could picture it on a screen. Anyway, I have this fantasy. I have no idea how realistic this is. I am not an expert in musicals, but um that, that was my unrealistic fantasy.
0: That's so funny. Yeah, I could see it as a uh, Julie Taymor. Uh no, I don't yeah. know. I don't. Know where I know. Well, go. That'd
1: be awesome. Anyone who's interested, that's <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. Very cool. All right. Well, um, do you plan to go undercover again for your next uh, novel?
1: I don't. Um, <laughs> I I hope it was one time thing. I I don't know, and I hope it it doesn't because I I don't see it as like a I don't know a gimmick or something. Like I realize as much as even though I had this journalism background. If I had tried to interview my coworkers, I never could have written this novel. I mean, and to be clear, they eventually, I told them I was a writer and I did actually sit down and interview with them, but this was after months of me working there when we were already friends. So it's its not that they didn't know, but if I had just sat down on day one, I feel like we would have been playing these roles. I would have been the journalist and they would have been the subject and and you're both sort of anticipating what the other one wants and instead i had to know them as as a coworker and it was kind of like high school i was just i wanted them to like me i was trying to fit in and unfortunately i'm kind of a nerdy person and so it was hard for me to try to convince them to like me um, you know some of my usual references or to books and to just things that, that just didn't exactly fly in this in the, uh, in the milieu so but I feel like I got to know them as like who was who was really funny about imitating our bad boss, you know who who had the driest sense of humor. and and I feel like that to me was really important that it come through in the book of just like how charismatic and likable they were. Like I didn't want the, their the only quality that came through about them is to be like that they were being exploited by their employer or they were <laughs> poor. Yeah. But that's it. So I feel like there was much to be said about going undercover in that sense. I just, it wasn't something I ever expected to do. And I kind of hope I'll be able to avoid it for the next one.
0: (laughs) Okay. Really, really cool story. Uh, All right. We are going to wrap up here and you've been very, very uh, generous with your time, but um, I have one fun one for you before we wrap. And if you could have uh, drinks, dinner with any author from any era. Who are you taking and where are we going to your favorite, ideally your favorite spot?
1: Oh, how fun. Okay. I'm just going to go with like, I get the person I always say, um, which is George Eliot. I mean, by saying, by always say, I mean, I've never been asked this question, but like my go-to favorite author, if I had like hours to think about it, I might try to think like, Hmm, is George Eliot the best one to have for drinks? Or should I go with like my (laughs) next level favorite authors who might be more into drinking? Um, George Elliott seems like she might be a little, um, on the restrained side. I don't know if she'd smoke a cigarette with me. I mean, oops, <laughs> I don't smoke cigarettes except on rare occasions, um, <laughs> just to be clear. Um, but, but yeah, that doesn't, I don't see George Elliott really like necessarily, um, kicking back in that way. But that said, she, middle March remains, it was, a, Blew me away when I was 21, and I reread it every few years, and I am just continually blown away by it. I like all seven, eight of her novels. Um, I think I've used epi- epigraphs from her for um, both my novels, and yeah. just, there's no one I admire more. So I'd have to, I'd have to choose George Eliot, even if we wound up going someplace very Victorian and, you know, kept it really on the up and up.
0: Okay. A <laughs> stayed.
1: Yeah. first date. That's the word I was searching for. Okay. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not giving George Elliot credit. I don't
0: know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but if we can get her to loosen up a little bit, maybe with a martini and then later on, uh, we'll sneak out and have a cigarette. Exactly. <laughs> okay. And if
1: my daughter listens to this, I have to be clear only on very special occasions such as been having a drink with george Eliot. this is not every
0: Right? Day. <laughs> no no of course not all right well uh appreciate your time your words your wisdom so i don't know uh your final just touchstone on just how to keep going
1: oh gosh um well let's see i i mean i think i would almost say my best advice is just to keep going when i look back and i think of getting like all sorts of decisions I made. Not all of them were great. Um, Definitely a lot of tribulations. Like I think I mentioned that first novel I wrote that didn't get published. Um, Later, I came to actually feel lucky it didn't get published, which I never thought I'd say at the time. the time, I was devastated. But I look back on it now, Mm -hmm. and I'm "I'm fond of that novel, and I'm really glad it lives in a drawer and that the world didn't have to see it. So I guess I would say that sometimes things that seem really Awful in the moment, and that you won't get through, like to try to know that they probably won't always seem that way. Um, as unbelievable as that can be when you're in the middle of something like rejection, which is just mm. awful. Um, and I guess the other thing I'd say is related is that I feel like I've gotten better over the years at trying to hear constructive criticism and like just take it in, take it seriously, and get. Better as a result. And that doesn't mean just always doing whatever like your professor says because your professor is published or or if you have an agent, your agent says because they know the industry. like like I think you have to filter stuff. and if something sounds wrong to you, it's wrong, but but I think you can't, for me, what I can do is reject things out of hand because it would mean more work or messing with my original intention. I feel like it was really important to learn to hear criticism think about it, and maybe take it in, maybe say no to it, but to really deeply consider it either way. Um, So to neither be too deferential to authority, but nor too defensive, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a perfect, perfect place to wrap. I love that. And I always, for some reason, it just made me think of this quote that I've kept kind of around, but it's a Kierkegaard quote, life can only be understood backwards. Um, but it must be lived forwards. Right. Get grist for the mill. And hey, congrats on Help Wanted. And um, yeah, we hope you come back and wrap with us again sometime in the future. That sounds great. Thank you
1: so much. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks so much for joining us for this file. And if you're a fan of the show, simply head over to writerfiles.fm for more. That's writerfiles.fm. FM